You're listening to our Southside Baptist Church podcast. For more audio content, please refer to our website. This is baptistchurch.com. I want you to take your Bibles. I want you to turn to James chapter 3. We're going to look at verse 17 and 18. And when you get to James chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, say amen. Amen, amen. Now I want you to look this way real quickly. When I walked all 50 state capitals and went to Washington, D.C. and walked our national capital, I uh, had one clear instruction from the Lord, and that was simply this, that I would draw a circle and that I would stand in it. And I would say that God, before revival can begin anywhere, it needs to begin in this circle. I think that you and I have a, an uncanny ability to take sermons and Bible and songs and give them over to other people. Or to believe that, hey, I wish they were here so they could have heard that today. Or, um, you know, I've had people come to me with a notebook, composition notebook of all the things they didn't like about me. Yeah. I don't know why you're surprised. But I want you to do something today. I want you to take your eyes off of everybody, and I want you to put your eyes in the eyes of God's Holy Spirit on your heart and on your life. And I want you to ask yourself the question, are these qualities, these characteristics in my life? Because they're a picture of what it means to be filled not only with the Holy Spirit, but to have God's wisdom. So this is a test for you and I to determine whether we have the wisdom of God, because this is what we've been talking about. We've talked about the value of godly wisdom. We've talked about the, uh, the cost of hanging on to that wisdom. But now we're looking at the characteristics or the attributes of godly wisdom. What does it mean to have that kind of wisdom? And, you know, real quickly, we've talked about this maze, and I've used this illustration. I'll use it today for the last time, that when we were in England, our children were playing in this big maze that was in these castles. We were staying in the Queen Mother's sister's castle. Sheila and I were up in this castle on the third floor, looked down. Our children were in this maze, and they had become disoriented. They couldn't figure out how to get out of it. They were getting a little nervous. And so they looked up, and as we called down to them, because of our unique perspective, we were able to look down in the maze, see where all the dead ends were, and guide them as they listened to us as to how to get out of the maze, how to make it through the maze. And that's life, and that's a picture of godly wisdom. God's wisdom, when I pray for God's wisdom, I'm saying, God, I need to see my life from your advantage point. As a parent, God, I need to see my children and the decisions they're making from your vantage point, not mine. Did you hear that, parent? I don't want my will for my kid's life. I want God's will for my children's life and for the people that I love. So uh, anyway, let's look. James chapter 3, beginning at verse 17. Well, let's read verse 13. Let's get a running start. 
Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. Now watch what James is going to give us. Verse 17, and everybody real quickly look this way. This is the one who grew up with Jesus. Jesus was his older brother. Now he converts to Christianity after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ because he saw something that completely changed his understanding of just who his brother was. But listen to what he says. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Let's pray again. Lord, we thank you. We love you. Lord, cleanse me. Let me be a tool in your hand. Forgive me for where I fail you. Lord, I know um, I'm a faulty vessel, just like everybody else in this room. But Lord, I pray you'll somehow use me today. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Now, the first thing that James does, first point, James reminds us where godly wisdom comes from. Now, I want you to look at verse 17, because this is critical. I want you to see this. James says in verse 17, but the wisdom that comes from where? Where does this godly wisdom come from? It comes from heaven. But the wisdom that comes from heaven. So guess what? If I want God's wisdom, then where am I going to have to look to get it? Am I going to read a book outside of the Bible? And am I going to attend a conference? Am I going to get it from the pastor? Only when he preaches the Word of God. Am I going to get it out of anything? No, I'm going to get it from God. That's why James said in James chapter 1, verse 5, he said, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask who? So you and I are going to go to God. Now, it's interesting here because James, how he words this in the Greek, now everybody stay with me, this is not a single act. In other words, this is not me saying, God, I need your wisdom, finish, done. It's not a single act. Now, what did we say? Wisdom is me seeing my life from whose perspective? From God. Okay, now everybody stay with me here. My children are trying to navigate through that maze just like you and I are trying to navigate life's decisions and choices through this maze of life. This is not a one-time act where I say, God, give me your wisdom, and God goes, there it is. 
This is a constant dialogue between me and God. I'm down in the maze and I'm constantly looking for input, insight, wisdom, counsel. James says in the Greek, this is a continual flowing of wisdom coming from God. That's important. I'm looking every day, every minute for it. It's an ongoing dialogue between God and his children. And whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. Now watch how he breaks it down. Okay, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all. Now everybody listen, I'm drawing a circle. I'm not saying, boy, I wish, some, I wish my wife, I wish my husband, I wish my kids, I wish my boss, I wish my pastor, I wish my friends, I wish my neighbor, I wish they would be more pure. You're drawing a circle and you're standing in that circle and you're asking this question, am I pure? That's the question. Now James says it, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. He uses a word here in the Greek, hagios, it's kind of the word for holiness. This is a wisdom that is based on God's holiness. It means here to be transparent, to be clean. There's no underlying motives. It's real. It's for always for everything that is good. Take a right from James and look at 1 Peter chapter 3. Let me give you a good example of that. Just for we're so close. 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 1. Now watch this. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see what? What do they see, wives? When they see the purity and the reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair, the wearing of gold jewelry, fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of an inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give in to fear. How does a wife win her husband? The Bible says here by her purity. It's a quality. Let me ask you, you say, well, wait a minute, that's for wives. Let me ask you this. Who are you and I the bride of? We're the bride of Christ. We're, we're, a, we're a room full of brides right now who listen. If we have God's Holy Spirit, if we have godly wisdom, there is a purity about us. My good friend Steve Taylor, who I told you last week, buried his wife after 53 years. He summed up her life over and over again with the word pure. Her oldest daughter was named Purity. My friend, imagine if you named your child Purity. Pure. Well, he goes on, he says, that kind of, this godly wisdom is not only pure, it's peaceable. Let me ask you something, are you peaceable? 
You know, uh, Habert says in his commentary on James, he said, this heavenly wisdom does not pursue peace, but listen, at the expense of purity. I wrote this down. If you have to compromise your moral integrity or a biblical principle to get peace, then don't. In other words, did you notice it's purity, then peace. I don't compromise my purity for the sake of peace. Never. Never. There's a level of purity and integrity and walk with you that is never compromised for the sake of peace. That's important. David Jeremiah said in his book called Turning to Integrity, true Peace is always an outgrowth of purity. Let me repeat that. True peace is always an outgrowth of purity. One writer said this, purity is holiness. Holiness is living in obedience to the commands of God. That's what brings peace. Are you with me? It's critical. David Jeremiah went on to say in this particular book that I was reading where he talks about the book of James, he said the absence of purity, listen to this, will always be accompanied by the absence of peace. When you and I are not seeking God's purity, holiness, hagiosmos, uh, that, that holiness, when we're not seeking that, then listen, we are starting to forfeit peace. The reason we don't have peace is we don't have purity. The reason I don't have peace or you don't have peace is because we start living in disobedience to the Word of God. And therefore, as we compromise purity, we compromise peace. We lose it. My friend, that's critical. I wrote a principle down here. You want peace in your life? Pursue purity. Did you hear that? You want peace in your life? Pursue purity. Listen to what Isaiah, you don't have to turn there. Isaiah 57, verses 20 and 21. You know what it says? When the peace of God follows our desire for the purity of God, it will affect those around us. In other words, when you and I have peace, it's because we have purity. When you and I have purity, there's a peace. There's an internal peace in us. We're living in obedience to God. And it brings this peace that the Bible says passes all understanding. And listen, hey, everybody stay with me here. Look this way. It is a peace that's contagious. I've got four children in that maze, Amy, Emily, Ledge, and Jeffrey. If, 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 if Amy and Emily are troubled or bothered, but their brothers are at peace, perfectly at peace, then how do their brothers affect their sister, their sisters? You see what I'm saying? When you and I are walking in obedience to the Lord, when there's a purity about us, there's a peace, and that peace is contagious. It, can, it, it affects other people's lives. Let me give you an example. Years ago, I, I got a call from a member in this church. And they said, Brother Jeff, I have to call and tell you something. I said, what is it? They said, we, we were going to the cemetery this morning over here on Clinton Boulevard, whatever the name of that big cemetery is, I forget. 
And when we drove through there, we saw an old man, and he was sitting in a lawn chair by grave. And they said it, 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 it bothered us. And it, as we got closer and closer, we realized that it was one of our church members. It was a man by the name of Mr. Caton. Mr. Caton, back when we used to have a choir, if I called on Mr. Caton to pray, this is how he would pray. I always told him he'd look like Santa Claus without a beard. You know what Mr. Caton would do? I'd call him to pray. He'd say, good morning, Jesus. Hello, Jesus. Say, pray. Just like that. When he lost his wife, he was traumatized. He was never the same. His children finally moved him, I think, to Ohio, and he died not long after that. He loved his wife. He'd go out there, and he'd sit every Saturday. He'd sit in that lawn chair by that, by that grave, and he'd just sit there, and he'd talk to her. And he'd smile. He just had perfect peace. And I used to think to myself, you know, there'd people coming into that cemetery that are traumatized. Many of them are hurting. Many of them have lost a loved one. Uh, funeral processions coming in. But imagine seeing this old man sitting in a lawn chair with a smile on his face, carrying on dialogue. Now, yes, his wife's in heaven, but there was a peace about that. And I wrote this down. A cemetery was a quiet, restful place on a Saturday morning for Mr. Caton to talk to his wife. But, buddy, I believe it brought peace to everybody who came into that cemetery. Uh, that's your life, and that's my life. There's a purity, and there's a peace about us. And when people look at us and they say, I don't understand how you can be so peaceful. Your answer is, is because I'm in tune with a sovereign God who's speaking truth down into that maze. And every once in a while, I'm like Mr. Kate, and I just stop and say, Hello, Jesus. Good morning, Jesus. And sometimes I'm here recently. You know what I've prayed? I've prayed the prayer of that old black man who looked up toward the heavens, and he said, God, your property is in trouble. There's a peace about us. John White says this, peace is a kind of lighthouse in the midst of a storm. Winds shriek, waves crash against the lighthouse. Lightning strikes all around it. But inside the children are playing while the parents are going about their work. Oh, they may look, they may look, the window, look out the window to marvel at the powers that rage around them, but they have peace. It is the peace of knowing that the strength that surrounds them is stronger than the strength of the storm. And I wrote this down. Do you know that kind of peace? Do you believe that God can handle any situation that you're bringing to the table right now? You see, there's a peace that's contagious. I've got a son that goes into the ICU over and over again. I didn't realize what he did until Sheila's sister was dying. From the time I walked up to that desk, two women lit up. They smiled and said, you're Jeffrey's dad. I said, yes, I am. They called him Jeff. I walked in there, nurses smiled and interactions. 
And I heard over and over again, you never know what it's like to have somebody who brings peace into a horribly troubling situation. That's a picture of a chaplain coming into a hospital room that's traumatized by the potential or the coming loss of a loved one. But in that moment, there's peace. Let me ask you this. Are we not all chaplains? And isn't the world a, a world of, of brokenness and hurting? And don't people need your peace? And you can't have that peace until you have the purity. You see, some of us, we forfeit that if we're not careful. Isaiah 26.3 says this, You will keep him or her in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he or her trust in you. Let me ask you something. Where do you think our children are looking when they're down in the maze? Looking up. You see, that's what brings peace. Where are you looking at right now? You had a problem? You got a difficulty? Job's not working out? Relationships going south? Uh, problems with your kids? Problems with your finances? Problems with your health? Where are you looking right now? Who's going to solve your problem? Are you running around in the maze trying to find some expert, professional, somebody that can help you out? Or are you looking up toward a sovereign God and saying, God, I'm... Is, as Jeremiah said in the Sunday school lesson, he said, I'm just going to wait patiently on God. Your property is in trouble. Trouble, Lord. Philippians 4, 7, Paul said, And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard... Listen to that. Did you hear that? The peace that God gives will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Well, he moves on. It's not just purity. It's not just peace. Watch what he goes on to say. <clears throat> it's first of all pure, then peace-loving, and then what? It's considerate. Now, let me give you another word. <clears throat> it's gentle. Are you gentle? Are you considerate? Let me read to you what one writer said. God's wisdom is purer than peaceable than gentle. Homer Kent made this statement. Now listen to this. Gentleness is being considerate of others and making an allow allowances for their feelings, their weaknesses, and their needs. Let me repeat that. Gentleness is being considerate of others making allowances for their feelings, their weaknesses, and their needs. Now, let me read on. Homer Kent went on to say, such qualities as being equitable, fair, reasonable, forbearing, not insisting on the letter of the law, but showing a willingness to yield. It was commonly used, this word of God, of kings, of slave masters who showed moderation of leniency to someone beneath them when it was actually within their power to insist upon their rights. To be gentle with somebody is to be kind, considerate. Remember this, we just drew a circle 
This is not who you're married to. It's not your children. It's not your parents. It's not your boss. It's not your friends. I want to ask you a question. Are you gentle? Are you considerate? Because this is godly wisdom. Are you gentle with others? I'm not talking about at your workplace where you put on a show. You see, for the truth is, for most of us, when we go to work, we act good. We behave. I'm talking about, are you general, gentle and considerate of your spouse? Are you gentle and considerate of your children? Are you gentle and considerate of the person who's checking you out? Are you gentle and considerate about the person who just cut you off? Are you gentle and considerate about the people who literally you take advantage of and don't realize how valuable they are to your life? I'm not talking about the hypocrisy that we often live out in the public. I'm talking about who we are in the dark. It's quiet. You know what Jesus said of himself? I love this. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, he said, I am gentle. Imagine that. Imagine you were to say that about yourself. He said, I am gentle and humble in heart. Isn't that beautiful? Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy two twenty four. this is the last letter, and he's about to be beheaded by Nero. Do you know what he told Timothy right before he died? He said, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach and to be patient. It was said of Abraham Lincoln that he was velvet steel. Are you gentle? Look, he goes on. He said, pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive. One writer said that heavenly wisdom that is willing to yield. In fact, this is the only place in the New Testament that these Greek words are used. It is a willingness to take instructions. You know what this is? It is when a man or a woman of God is in a position of authority, and yet they choose to be gentle. They yield or give in uh, in some ways. You know, sometimes authority, some people can't handle authority. You know, I'm always amazed when people want to preach. Do you, let, me, let me be blunt. When somebody tells me they want to preach, you know what I see that as? That insults me as much as a guy go walking up to a girl and saying, can we have sex tonight? And you, may say, you may say, well, that's crude. No, that's exactly what it is. It's not a matter of preaching. This is the easy part. It's a matter of pastoring. You see, that's the difference. And I think sometimes that some people can't handle authority. This is a person who can has a heavenly wisdom about them. They can handle that authority. They don't beat people up with it. This is not the man who goes, you know, everybody submits to me, hupatasso. Wife, you submit to me, you know, this is not the boss that goes in and he's cracking, popping the whip. This is somebody who knows how to handle authority and they do it with a willingness to yield if they have to. He goes on to say this is a considerate, submissive, and it's full of mercy. Look at this. 
in verse 17. It's full of mercy and good fruits. I saw a homeless man on a street corner. In the last couple of weeks, he had Ephesians 2.10. That's all he had. He was standing on a street corner. He had Ephesians 2.10. I wanted to stop and look at him and say, Hey, buddy, you're wasting your time. Now, if you had Ephesians 2, 7, and 8, say, by grace through faith, it's a gift of God. It's not a... If you had that up there, it'd be all right. A lot of Baptists might know that. A lot of Christians may know that. But verse 10, they don't know that. Some of you are already wondering what verse 10 is. Let me read it to you. Let me read it to you from the Amplified Bible. For we are his workmanship, his own master work of art. The word there's poem, uh, poema, poema. Do you know what that word poema is? It's the word for poem. Do you know what God says? When you and I are filled with his Holy Spirit, we are his written poem to a lost world. Now listen to what he got. Listen to the Amplified Bible. For we are his workmanship, his own masterwork of art, created in Christ Jesus, reborn from above, spiritually transformed, renewed, ready to be used for good works which God prepared for us beforehand so that we would walk in them, living the good life which he prearranged and made ready for us. In other words, what the homeless man was saying is your act of mercy, the fact that you look at me, the fact that you stop, the fact that you interact with me, the fact that you seek to meet my need, is you acting out what Ephesians 2.10 is. We are saved for good works. Does that make sense? You know, somebody said, well, you know, um, on this thing of homeless at a street corner, Everybody listen closely. Because I'm going to tell you a lot about who you are character-wise. If a homeless man or woman standing on a street corner, then you just drive by, it don't even register. Then, my friend, you better take a long, hard look at whether you're saved at all. You may say, well, I don't have no money on me. I don't carry no cash. I don't have anything to give. It's all right. But if your heart, if your eyes don't somehow move toward that, and your heart is somehow pricked, and even though you don't do anything, there's still that, that hurt in you. It's a good picture of what it means to have godly wisdom. God's people just can't pass by without at least feeling the pain. Whose, whose son, whose daughter is this? Why are they where they are? Well, he moves on. He says, he said, it's pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial. It means unwavering there. Again, David Jeremiah, in his book, Turning Toward Integrity, said it this way. The term used here describes someone who's not discriminatory. They're not prejudiced toward others. They just accept people the way they are. Sounds familiar. Sounds like Dr. King, doesn't it? He went on to quote R.W. Dale. He said, the world's wisdom it, it makes... He said, the world's wisdom 
it, it, it makes people like a shifty politician. He said people with the world's wisdom, they just set their sails to the prevailing wind. They speak well of a man one day whom, he spoke, uh, whom that person spoke ill of the day before. Not because he, he's just basically saying that this is a the person with the world's wisdom. They're just unwavering, vacillating. They just hold their finger up to the air in whichever way the winds went. They're like a politician. But he said, that's not a person that's filled with the wisdom of God. And I wrote down there, when I read that, I thought, oh God, how we need men and women who are unwavering, not intimidated, those who do not live their life with a finger to the wind, just trying to read the whims of the crowd, but they walk by the will of God. And then lastly, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, and sincere. It's no hypocrisy. I was speaking to a group of ministers this past week that had asked me to spend time with them, and as we were speaking, I brought up the term blameless, and I looked at these men, and I said, what does that word blameless mean? And I said this, I said, because in Job chapter 1, God talks about Job, and he says, this is a man who's blameless, righteous, fears God, shuns evil. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, blameless came before fears God? Blameless came before shuns evil? What does this word blameless mean? Everybody listen, if you were here Wednesday night, you know. It means this is a man or a woman who with the wisdom of God is the transparent. You can't bring any accusation against them that they've not already brought against themselves. They're blameless. They're honest. They're open. They're transparent. And you may say, well, you know, I don't... I, I, I guess standing in that circle, I guess I fail. I do too. You may say it's hard to live the life of holiness. Yes, it is. You may say, you know, this Christian life's not easy. No, it's not. I read of some men that were helplessly and hopelessly lost at sea in a great storm. They begin to cry out to God. The women of that village had gathered and for Ledge and Sheila and Jeffrey, of those that you'll know exactly where I'm talking about. They were in Cornwall, England, on the Atlantic coast, down near Land's End, where we've stood, where the wind blows so strong that you can lean into it and not fall. The women of that village back years ago had gathered. Their husbands had been out at sea. They were coming back in. But the storm was violent, and they were disoriented between the English Channel and the Atlantic. And finally, those men on that ship, they caught the glimpse of a massive 
fire built up on that Cornwall area on that area up on the shore sitting up on high up on that cliff they saw this brilliant fire and so they began to turn their sails and the rudder and they began to move in that direction and they eventually made it to shore when they got to shore all the wives and the children were gathered around their husbands began to wrap their arms around them and finally there came that moment in the celebration they looked with their arm around their wife, around their children, and said, let's go home. One wife stood there, tears rolling down her cheeks, looked at her husband. She said, honey, we don't have no home to go home to. He said, what do you mean? She said, honey, we lost everything. Our home burned to the ground. He reached, he wrapped his arm around his wife. He pulled his kids up. He looked at her and said, Oh, honey, if it hadn't have been for that fire, we would have never made it home. I don't know what's burning in your life right now. I don't know where you're hurting. But it could, could it be that your loss right now is the only way God can get you home? I close with this. It's been a, you know, a minister's life can be horribly painful. I shared with the Wednesday night group um, almost two years ago, my niece, who was a real estate agent in Houston, Texas, and a very prominent, very good real estate agent, who lived in a home probably close to a million dollars in a fluent neighborhood who had everything, got up one Monday morning. Her and her husband had been arguing and fighting, and at 10 o'clock, just after 10 o'clock, on a normal day going to work, he shot and killed her. It's what I call a perfect storm. It was during COVID. They were out of out of church, they were out of relationships, their finances were in disarray, they were under a lawsuit by a, a, a friend of theirs who was suing them for something that involved their child over something, riding in a side-by-side -side where her friend was hurt. It was just one thing after another, and all of it culminated in this act of him shooting and killing his wife. Now, I want you to stay with me. I need you to listen, please. He looked to me for counsel. Now, my sister, whose daughter died, has shut down. So you almost feel like, you know, how do, what do I do? So I counseled him the best I could, a man who shot and killed my niece and my sister, who now will never be the same. But he said one thing. He said, Jeff, he said, it wasn't COVID, it wasn't the lawsuit, it wasn't finances, it wasn't all the other, it wasn't marital problems. I want you to listen. He said, is when we got out of church, when we quit going to church, our life systematically began to dismantle, fall apart. This past week, I'm counseling him again. 
Why? Because he was packing up, moving. He's getting ready to go to trial. He's under house arrest. He's in a million-dollar home, but he can't even step off the back porch. He's got a built-in pool, but he can't walk to it. His son came over to move him out so they could sell the house, so they could help cover the legal expenses. And while his 33-year-old son, father of one, a little boy, was over there helping him move and get ready, he said, I, the, the dad said all of a sudden he pulled out a 9-millimeter, shot and killed himself right in front of his dad. And this man wept and cried. Wept and cried. And he said, Brother Jeff, he said, my son shot and killed himself in front of me. And then he came back to this. And it all started when we pulled away from God. We pulled away from the Lord. We got out of the fellowship of a body of believers and our life began to dismantle. And I don't know where it will end. See, I called him by name. I said, I've told people this story. I've told them your testimony. Do you know what he said? Please tell them. Don't stop. Please tell them. Let's stand. Our Heavenly Father, this sermon today has been serious, Lord. It's been a time for all of us to look at our own life, to look deep within our soul, to look in our hearts, to look at our behavior and to say, God, am I a pure man? Am I a pure woman? Am I peace-loving? Am I peaceable? God, is there a gentleness about me, a kindness about me? God, I, am I the kind of person who can handle authority? Do I yield? Do I, am I kind and gentle and sometimes patient? when people can be very difficult and test me. God, for the homeless man who stands on the corner who says, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, then you can't help but see me. But God, if we become hardened, has our compassion, our mercy become hardened? Have we become such a victim that we don't see the brokenness of the lives all around us? Do we live our life too much a victim, too much centered on ourselves, what we're doing right or what we're, what's being done wrong to us? Is that our life? The bottom line is today, Lord, you've given us an inventory. This is not a service where people come down the aisle and say to the pastor, uh, Pastor, I want to do this or that. This is the kind of service where people just go to the altar kneel at the foot of the cross and just simply say, Lord, the attributes, the qualities, the characteristics of being filled with your wisdom, Lord, are not there. And so, Lord, today I, as a pastor, join with the congregation to bow down and to say, God, help me to be more what you have instructed today through your word. And Lord, I'll kneel here for a moment and then I'll be here to receive people who are giving their life to Christ. To receive people who are coming today 
for the reason of saying I'm not a Christian and I want to settle this and to know that I'm saved. But for all other decisions, even prayer, may we just simply go to the altar, taking our little circle where we stand, carrying it with us, and saying, God, let revival begin in this circle. Let it begin in me. And Lord, this is our prayer. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.